Let's open up our Bibles at Luke chapter 11. I'm going to read from verses 14 to 28. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armour in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes in and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mary, for reading for us. Uh, I'd encourage you to keep that passage open in front of you. In fact, just turn back to uh, page 869 in the beginning of verse 14. That's where we're going to start and we're going to work our way through the passage uh, on the way through. Now, we're returning again this morning to consider this wonderful person of the Lord Jesus Christ, his teaching. And if you're new or you're visiting, uh, you may be thinking, well, what's this all about? And we need to just do a little bit of a recap just to see where we are in Luke's Gospel. So let me just take a minute just to fill you in on where we're up to. In chapter 10 and 11, just the last few weeks that we've been looking at, Jesus has been teaching his disciples what it means to follow him, to follow him in faith. And he taught them that to follow him meant depending on God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It meant listening to the Son, listening to Jesus and his word in the Bible. It meant praying to the Father, praying to him for all that we need. And it meant depending on the gift of the Holy Spirit 
to serve Jesus in his mission to proclaim the forgiveness of sins to the world. And so a Christian then, we've learned over the last two weeks, is someone who recognises that following Jesus is just too hard for them to do. And so they must learn to depend on the grace that God gives for every day. Now, why is it so hard to follow Jesus? Well, the answer to that is what we're going to learn in the rest of chapter 11. Chapter 11 is all about opposition to Jesus. In this part of the journey, as he sets his face towards Jerusalem and to the cross, as he goes there to die in the place of sinners, that they may be forgiven, we find that some people oppose him. And so in this section, this little section, the tension begins to build. Jesus, we learn, has enemies. He has opponents. And increasingly, they begin to show their faces. And Luke wants us to see who those enemies are and who it is that stands behind them, pulling the strings. But more than that, he wants us to see and be certain of the fact that in the end, those enemies are no match for this man, Jesus So that's where we are, that's the scene. Let's pray before we look at this passage. Our Father, we thank you for what you have taught us so far about the Lord Jesus Christ and about what it means to follow him. And we pray that as a result of what we see this morning in your word, that we may do that, just that, we may follow him more closely, with more determination and wholeheartedly. Change us, we pray in that regard, in Jesus' name. Amen. On the back of the service sheet, you'll see there's just an outline for you just to show you where we're going this morning. Just three simple points to take us through the text. We see Jesus defeats his opponents. We see Jesus defeat the opponent. And then we're challenged to not be one of Jesus' opponents. So verse 14 to 20, Jesus defeats his opponents. I wonder, when was the last time that you thought about the devil Halloween's approaching, just a week away, and it may be that at that time your thoughts do turn to consider the devil, but perhaps not in a serious way. He's just kind of a fun figure to give us a bit of a fright. You get ghosts and ghouls and skeletons and spirits and devils and demons and darkness, but, but it's all in a party spirit, isn't it? It's, it's not serious, it's not real, it's just stories to tell for a good time. Well, in the last century or so in the West, the prevailing view has been that belief in a supernatural spiritual evil being, such as a devil, is foolish. It's ancient superstition. It it belongs in a primitive era where uh, we didn't know any better. And I wonder if that's close to what your view is on these things today. Well, if so, let me just push back a little on that. Would you say that 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 view really accounts and accounts well for the extraordinary evil that we see in the world? So if there's no such thing as the devil or a spiritual evil, how do you account for the horrors of war or for the abuse of the vulnerable or for the wickedness of slavery or sex trafficking? And when you see holocausts and genocides, where do you think they come from? 
What do you put it down to if there's no such thing as spiritual evil? In the face of such things, can you really maintain the idea that human beings are basically good and that our world is progressing onwards and upwards to a new enlightened era? Well, can I ask that we at least consider this morning that Kaiser Sose was right. Some of you may remember the film The Usual Suspects. People only ever remember one line from that film. This is the famous line. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. It's a great line, isn't it? And that seems to be what's happened. Although I do want to point out that he was not quite right. It's not the whole world that doesn't believe in spiritual evil. It's the Western world. Those in the East and those in the global South, well, they've got no problem believing in supernatural evil, nor the devil, nor demons. And so it's just us. We in the West, we're out of step with the world on this front. And of course, we're out of step with the Bible's teaching The Bible presents to us a world that has both physical reality and spiritual reality and real personal spiritual beings within that. That's what we see in Luke's Gospel. As you've you've been with us from the beginning, chapter 1 all the way through, you've seen that again and again and again. The question's not whether the devil exists, it's whether he can be defeated. That's enough of a warm-up. Let's look at the text of our accounts in verse 14. Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marvelled. So Jesus meets a man who can't speak. He's mute. But in this case, and not in every case, but in this case, Jesus discerns that this man is not mute because of some physical defects, but because he's being oppressed by a spiritual being, by a demon. And so Jesus casts the demon out of the man, and the man speaks, and it's an amazing miracle, and everyone who sees it uh, marvels at Jesus. See, this is the kind of astonishing power that Jesus has. But Luke actually gives very little time to the miracle itself, doesn't he? Just one verse, that's all he gives to it. And so it's the reaction to the miracle that he's really concerned about. As we see in verse 15. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now just notice this, they don't actually question the miracle itself, do they? They realised that Jesus actually did do this. And the Jewish histories that we have from that time, ones that are written by those who don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, they also have no doubt that Jesus was a worker of miracles. They saw him do it, and so they don't question whether he has that kind of power. But because they do not want to believe that Jesus is God that only leaves them one option. They have to say that Jesus must get his power from Satan, that he's a worker of evil. 
It's really pretty remarkable, isn't it, that they see this wonderful act of liberation for this man, the, the man who was suffering, and they accuse Jesus of being in league with the devil, with the prince of demons, with Beelzebul, which is a name that you know because it means Lord of the Flies. Now there's another response in there as well, that it seems that for others this miracle is just not enough. They demand he prove himself in more spectacular ways, and we'll see more of Jesus' answer to them uh, next week. These are the kind of people who demand that the sign, uh, that the sign is actually a sign. It's never enough. But with either response, there's such hostility to Jesus. But what we see Jesus do is dismantle their logic. And he does it in two steps. Step one is in verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Pretty devastating to their view. It's, it's obvious that when a kingdom's divided in civil war, the kingdom collapses, it destroys itself. You, know, you don't have to look too far into history to figure that one out. What Jesus has just done, setting a person free from demonic oppression, healing this person's inability to speak, well, it's clearly a good thing. It's clearly a good thing, isn't it? I mean, no one thinks that's going to be a bad thing. So logically, it can't be Satan's work. It goes directly against what Satan wants, to harm and destroy, to trap people. So Jesus' argument is basically this. Look, Satan is evil, but he's not a moron. You know, he's not going to destroy his own work, is he? I mean, come on. What you're saying is illogical. And then Jesus makes a second point. And how about this, says Jesus in verse 19. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. See, there are also Jewish exorcists around uh, this time. Some of them were their own people. And these opponents thought that they, their work in exorcism was, they thought it was a good thing, they thought it was good for society, not evil at all. So if they're going to say that Jesus is in league with Satan, well, of course then, they can't just stop there, can they? They also have to accuse their own sons of that too, which they won't do. See, Jesus destroys the argument of his opponents. What they're saying can't be true, and the right thing to do would be to admit that. So Jesus has defended himself, but now he goes on the offensive. He's proved that he can't be doing evil. So what other possible explanation could there be? Well, verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In the book of Exodus, in the Old Testament, God was seeking to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt, the great evil power of that day. He was going to rescue them and lead them out into the promised land. And so God sent Moses to Pharaoh, the, the leader of that people, and before Pharaoh, God enabled Moses to perform several miraculous signs, miracles. 
Now in the story, to begin with, Pharaoh's got some court magicians and they copy Moses' his signs. They are able to perform the signs as well. And they even copy the first two plagues in Egypt, at least uh, to some degree. But by the third plague, they can't compete anymore. They can't do what Moses was doing. And so this is the conclusion that they come to. Exodus chapter 8, verse 19. The magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. So when Jesus employs that phrase of himself here, he's saying, even Pharaoh's magicians, who are pretty evil, by the way, even they came to the conclusion that God himself was working when they saw the signs. Why then have you not come to that conclusion when you've seen what I've done? Jesus' power, if it doesn't come from Satan, which it can't do, must come from God. In fact, the logical conclusion is that when you see Satan being defeated, as you have seen, the kingdom of God has come because God's king has come. You see, Jesus defeats his opponents. He shows them their logic is foolish, and then he inserts some logic of his own. Here's the conclusion you should come to, that Jesus is God himself, God's king, bringing in God's kingdom. Okay, that's the first section. Let's look now at the next thing Jesus teaches, which is this little parable that he um, explains to show us what's really going on in his ministry. It's verse 21 and 22. Let me read. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armour in which he trusted and divides his spoil. What does this mean? The first strong man is Satan, the great opponent of God and his work. Jesus is portraying the world here as being held captive by Satan. He's he's already said that Satan has a kingdom of sorts in verse 18. And he places him here in a palace, that's the seat of his rule. He's strong, he's fully armed, and he guards his goods, those things that he's captured, that is human beings. He won't let them go from his grip. And the Bible's clear in several places, including here, that this is the spiritual reality of this world, that all of us are held captive by Satan, whether in a direct and forceful way, like the man who has the demon in this passage, or in a more indirect but no less serious way by deception, that we are enslaved by our sins, that we are blind to the truth, that we are refusing to listen to Jesus. Jesus teaches here that none of us are strong enough to break out of Satan's grip. He is stronger than us. But the good news is that there is one who's stronger than Satan. Jesus is the stronger man. And as he comes into this world, he's in the business of stripping Satan of his power and bringing people out of Satan's palace, as it were. 
What Jesus is describing here is what we might call regime change. As Jesus comes to die for the sins of his people, he is dethroning the evil one. And he's bringing people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his light and grace and truth, the kingdom of God. This is how the writer to the Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 2. He says that through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, far from Jesus working for Satan, as his opponents suggest, the opposite is happening. Jesus is defeating and destroying Satan's work, his kingdom. He's breaking Satan's grip on humanity. He's doing what he said he would do in Luke chapter 4. Do you remember these words? He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. The dominion of Satan is being demolished by Jesus and Jesus is rescuing people into the kingdom of God. And it may be this morning that you're aware for the first time that that is what you need. That you now realise your captivity and you long to be free. Well, here is one in Jesus who is strong enough to set you free. All of which presents us with a choice. That brings us to our third and final point this morning. Verse 23 to 28, don't be one of Jesus' opponents. Here's verse 23, just at the end of telling that little story to illustrate what's really going on, what he's really doing, he says this, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So this is what Jesus is up to. This is what he came to do to set people free Well, we, as those who are listening, we can only respond to him in one of two ways. We can either join Jesus' team or we side with his opponents. That's what we have here in these last few verses. We have that choice portrayed to us. We're presented with this, that Jesus is good, that he's the powerful God of the Bible, that he's defeating evil and setting people free and bringing them into his kingdom... And, by the way, this same Jesus is calling us to follow him, to join him in his mission by proclaiming the good news about him, by gathering people in. And so, if we will not side with Jesus in what he's doing, then there's only one other side to belong to. Jesus will not allow for a position of neutrality. He says, if you are not fully with him in his mission to gather people from Satan's palace to God's kingdom, if you're not fully with him, then be of no doubt you are against him. You're an opponent. And now he warns us that that is a really dangerous place to be. Now these next words of Jesus are are, are difficult and perhaps a little bit scary. 
Let's try and stick with it as we go through. Jesus tells another story, verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, as I was preparing this week and I came to that part of the passage, I just thought, well, you know, what am I going to say about that? You know, it's quite hard, isn't it? And as I was thinking about it and struggling for what to say, uh, to the rescue came the 19th century Bishop of Liverpool, a guy called J.C. Ryle. And he wrote this little book on Luke. It's called Thoughts on, on the Gospel of Luke. And he writes that what Jesus is getting at here is, of course, about the spiritual reality of demonic influence over an individual. Of course, it's about that. But he also says, look, you can apply this to various situations. And I found this helpful, and I thought I'd share it with you. So Ryle says that, first of all, we can apply it to the Jewish religion up to the point when Jesus came. So it's as if, by the giving of the law of God that particular house of Israel had been swept clean and put in order. But that because they became proud and self-righteous, the Holy Spirit left them. And Satan has brought that house into an even worse state than it was in to begin with. It's become seven times harder, if you like, to God than it was before. And so much so that when the Messiah came and he was stood there in front of them, they rejected him and were violently hostile to him. Does that make sense? So Jesus is saying here, this Ryle says, that this describes the generation that Jesus has in front of him. And Jesus will say much more about that generation in uh, the rest of uh, chapter 11. But Ryle doesn't stop there. He says, well, not only that, let's also apply it to the church See, we as, as Gentiles, we also were under the rule of Satan, we were under Satan's thumb, and then we were set free by the gospel as we believed in Jesus. But as you look back over the course of history, over the decades and the centuries, often some things change. He says, this describes a church that has an historic tradition of faith, that's built on orthodox Christian teaching, a church that's swept clean and put in order, so to speak. And when that church rejects the word of Jesus that it once held fast to, and therefore the spirit of God, it leaves that house spiritually empty. And Satan sees the opportunity to return and take it by force that he then dwells in the structure of that house until he's destroyed it from the inside. Now that, to my mind, is a remarkable prophetic word for our day. Is that not what we see all over our country? Churches that once worshipped in spirit and in truth, but which are now the haunt of demons or even utterly destroyed. It's pretty strong stuff for us. 
But then Ryle says, look, you can't just do that. You have to also apply it to the individual. And he applies it not merely to those who are demonised, like the man who Jesus healed in the story, but also to all of those people who are under Satan's influence in that more subtle way, that way of deception as all human beings are in the world. And Ryle uses the phrase, reformation without conversion, to describe this kind of person. So this is the person who appreciates Jesus and uh, he appreciates what Jesus has done to rescue humanity, but he doesn't fully receive him. This is a person who does not accept the spirit of God into their life. They don't live their life for Jesus alone and for his mission. So when a man or woman hears the word about Jesus and attempts to reform their life somewhat, and they try to change their behaviour or their speech or their thought life. But when they do just that, but don't fully repent and receive the indwelling life of God's Spirit, in other words, when they don't permit the Spirit to take up residence in their hearts, in the house of their hearts, well, all they do is put themselves at greater risk. It's reformation without conversion. When a person merely has this veneer of religiosity but not the indwelling presence of God, the Holy Spirit, well, the evil one spies a spiritual vacuum and rushes in to take an even firmer grip on their life. They become even more hard-hearted to Jesus and his word than they were to begin with. So this, then, is a severe warning to churches and to individuals we mustn't end up in a position of cool neutrality towards Jesus, a position of lukewarmness where we merely appreciate him. That's to end up eventually as one of Jesus' opponents. That's to give Satan the opportunity to get hold of us. No, we need to get on Jesus' side. We need to be with him. We need to be with him wholeheartedly. We need to have his spirit fill our hearts and lives. So how do we do that? Well, that brings us to the final two verses, verse 27 to 28. As Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts of which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. I wonder what you think of this woman here. Why did she say what she says? It tells us that she said it as he said these things, the things he's just been saying. And it seems a little bit strange thing to say, doesn't it? I mean, is it, is it that she's sort of just pro-Jesus? She's trying to encourage him, compliment him? Well, it might be. Is it, though, perhaps that she's merely wanting to change the subject? I wonder if it is that. I mean, Jesus has been saying some pretty hard things and what she says here is a misunderstanding. And actually more than that, it's also a distraction. She's missed the point. Now a preacher that I, I heard pointed out that when you walk around uh, some of these old churches and you see the stained glass windows, you see these images of Mary and she has the baby Jesus on her knee and you think by looking at these images that 
that she's the central figure, that she's the one who's really blessed by God by virtue of her motherhood. And Mary, of course, was blessed by having Jesus. Of course she was. But that isn't the main reason she was blessed. And we know that from Luke, don't we? Because when she was told about the birth of Jesus by the angel, that she'd have God's son, her response to the angel was this, let it be to me according to your word. Now listen to what Jesus says. He says to this woman who calls out this blessing on Jesus' mother, he says, you've missed the point because real spiritual blessing is accessible to all. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. See, this then is how you make sure you're on Jesus' side. This is how you can be set free from Satan's grip and brought into his kingdom. This is how to be on the side of the finger of God and the kingdom of God. It's how to be on the side which is victorious over evil and which sets people free. So we're to be warned, we're not to oppose Jesus, we're not to take a position of cool neutrality towards him, for that is in fact to oppose him. We're not to merely appreciate him. Instead, we're to hear the word of God as he speaks it and then keep it. Listen to the good news of Jesus' death for the forgiveness of sins. Believe in him and follow him as his disciple, accepting the gift of the Spirit from the Father to fill your heart and life. And you shall find true blessing because you'll be siding with God's King. Lots for us to think about there. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we've considered lots of things this morning and some hard things for us. We ask for your help by your Spirit as we go on thinking about these things today and through this week. Help us to wrestle with these things and understand them. But Lord God, we want to thank you for the central truth that we've seen, that Jesus Christ is powerful to save that he rescues from Satan's grip human beings and brings them into his kingdom. Lord God, we thank you for those of us who've trusted in Jesus. Thank you that that is true of us. We praise you for all you've done to save us. And we thank you too that that is a message that we can take to the world, the message that the world needs to hear, that they need rescuing, and that Jesus is strong enough to do it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.